Hey everybody, this is Sam Bretzman and this is episode one of the Travel and Adventure podcast, Kayaking the Kwanzaa. In this episode, we talked to Oscar Scafidi about kayaking, travel writing, setting a Guinness World Record, and how to avoid the shakedown from authorities. Hope you all enjoy. Great. Well, hi everybody. Uh, this is Sam Bretzman and on the Skype call with me, uh, we have Oscar Scafidi. Did I pronounce the last name right? Yes, that's correct, yeah. Uh, and uh, Oscar is uh, currently in Madagascar. Um, he can share a little bit about what he's doing there um, um, in a little bit. But we wanted to talk to him about his uh, really crazy adventure that he had uh, with a buddy of his named Alfie. Um, so Oscar, just to start, could you give us like the uh, two to three minute overview of Kayak the Kwanzaa and what you did? Yeah, sure. So in June and July 2016, my friend Alfie and I uh, went over to Angola, uh, which is in sort of southwest Africa, and we kayaked and hiked the length of the longest river in the country, which is the Kwanzaa River. So we spent 33 days traveling 1,300 kilometers all the way from the source of the river up in the highlands out into the Atlantic Ocean. Um, and while we're doing that, we raised 25,000 US dollars for the mine clearance charity, the Hayden Trust, which works in Angola. That's uh, really, I mean, that's awesome. Uh, why did you do it? Like, what was the catalyst to like, hey, we just want to go spend a month and hike and kayak along a semi-dangerous river? <laughs> uh, well, it was Alfie's idea originally. Um, so Alfie and I met when we were living and working out there. So I lived and worked in the country for five years, uh, and Alfie was out there for three years in total. Uh, and basically, so in 2016, I'd already left Angola and moved back to London, whereas Alfie was still working there. Mm -hmm. And he kind of found out that he was going to be uh, moved for work to Hong Kong. So he knew he only had a few weeks left at work. Then he had kind of a two-month gap. Then he knew he was moving to Hong Kong. So he wanted to do one big sort of final trip in the Angolan countryside to say goodbye to the country. Mm -hmm. And he somehow came up with this idea of trying to navigate the entire Kwanzaa River. Um, and I think he realized I was probably the only person who was stupid enough to say yes to him <laughs> and come along on the journey. Um. Yeah, and that's and and as part of that, then I, and you had just mentioned this, but you guys helped to raise like twenty five thousand dollars for the Halo uh, fund or trust or organization. Halo Trust, yeah. Halo Trust. Okay. Yeah. So I mean, I, I guess the idea came first, and then the charity aspect to it came second. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I we I, I had worked in an international school in Angola, um, and the students we'd we'd had the Halo Trust in to talk to the students in the past about the sort of terrible landmine legacy in Angola because they'd had a civil war from 1975 to 2002. Mm -hmm. And it's actually one of the most landmine-affected countries in the world, even today. So we thought, well, okay, if we're going to do this big crazy journey, and it's probably going to get some publicity, we might as well use that publicity for a, for a positive cause. So we decided that we were going to try and raise money for them. Because um, they've recently, all the landmine charities in the world have set themselves this aim that they want a landmine-free world by 2025. Okay. And there are only a few countries in the world that they're kind of concerned about, thinking they're not going to reach the target. Uh, Afghanistan's one of them, and unfortunately Angola's another one. So they mm. really are desperate for funds so they can get all these landmines removed in the next sort of seven or so years. Gotcha. So we thought, why not? Let's raise them some money, basically. Yeah, that's awesome. Where can, uh, do you know their website offhand? Is it just halotrust.com? 
dot org or uh, let's have a look. I think it's halotrust.org. They're a charity registered in Scotland. So yeah, it's just halotrust.org. Gotcha. If you want to go and find out what they're up to. Cool. That's great. Um, and then I know as, I mean, along the journey and there's a, uh, for anybody that wants to, to find out more about it, you can go to kayakthekwanza.com. Uh, Kwanza is K-W-A-N-Z-A. And there's a great like 50 minute documentary of the whole trip. Um, and I know, I mean, there are some crazy things that you guys encountered between the, uh, your canoe sinking to, um, some encounters with hippos to, uh, being arrested and detained. Like out of all of that, what was the, is there a thing that like stuck out the most or were you in a, in a spot where you were just like, what am I doing here? I think we had quite a few of those moments on the journey. Yeah, um, I, I think I think probably the the issue that we had. I mean, that you've highlighted the three big issues there. So first, we managed to crash and sink the kayak in rapids on day ten of the expedition, which wasn't great. Um, that was kind of I, that was both of our faults. We were being kind of cocky uh, in a set of rapids. We probably should have dragged the kayak around, but mm-hmm. we we're feeling lazy and decided we could probably make it. Uh, and we ended up crashing it into a fishing dam that had been a, built across the river to catch fish in the fast-flowing shallow water. Um, so yeah, that was a that was a pretty big delay, but we managed we managed to deal with that one. Uh, and likewise, getting attacked by hippos wasn't great, uh, but there's no sort of long-lasting effects from that. But yeah, I think it was really getting arrested that, that stood out as the big, the biggest, the most surprising hurdle. That de- definitely wasn't something we were expecting at the beginning of the journey. Whereas we knew there'd be rapids and we knew there'd be hippos. Yeah, <laughs> gotcha. Um, cool. So that's great. And then I and I know you guys are also. I believe you set a world record, and now you're currently trying to get that officially uh, registered with the Guinness Book of World Records. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Well, I mean, I'm pretty sure we set a record. I don't know anyone else who's done that. And we did quite a lot of research beforehand because it would have been useful to speak to someone else about it before doing it. But um, no, I think we're the first people to do that. And we are now in the process of handing over the evidence to Guinness World Records to get it recognized. But so I what... guess people will be reassured to hear this. Guinness are quite fussy about the evidence you provide. So it actually <laughs> requires a lot of forensic evidence to prove that you've done something. So it's taking a long time to kind of satisfy them we did do what we said we did. Yeah, so what? two questions on that quick. One, what it actually is the record that you set? Well, that, that is a discussion we are still having with Guinness World Records. So they, uh, they first suggested fastest navigation of the Kwanzaa River. Okay. And obviously, I guess if we're the first ones to do it, then we will have set that record. <laughs> um, but now, with all the delays on the journey and getting arrested for four days and that kind of thing, I don't think our speed was particularly impressive. So I think we're going for longest distance kayaked on the river because we we think that's going to be pretty hard to beat given that we kayaked almost all the navigable sections sure and then oh. what sorry go ahead no no go ahead no i was just gonna say is then uh just kind of out of curiosity what has been the process of actually working with guinness and getting that uh officialized uh, well, at the, before you go, it's pretty simple. I mean, they have a website. You sign up with a profile, which is free to do, uh, and then you kind of suggest a record to them, uh, and you get allocated, I guess, a case manager who talks to you about it. You, you agree a wording for the title, and then before the record takes place, you agree what evidence is going to be required in order to, for them to actually acknowledge that that happened and stick it in the book. Okay. So we had a, a lot of back-and-forth discussion before we even went about how is it going to be worded and what were they going to need exactly. Um, 
and you know, there's there's a fair bit of flexibility there. You know, they they obviously handle a lot of different record attempts, so they understand some of the difficulties of traveling in remote locations. <laughs> so gotcha. we discuss with them what we're looking for, and then I think we agreed a few ideas. And then once you get back, it's just simply a case of getting back in touch with them and providing all the information that they've asked for. It's a lot of information. Got they it. do want a lot. Got it. All right. Well, that's good to know. Um, and then, so with all this now, you are working on getting a book published, and um, I guess yeah, that's right. Yeah, if you could want to share a little bit about the book and then uh, the process that you're using to get it published. So I wrote the book out of, I suppose, personal interest and to kind of preserve some of the memories or get them all together so that I can kind of look back on it in a few years, a few decades' time and remember. <laughs> and then when it was finished, I decided that I was going to have a go at getting it published because there'd been a bit of interest expressed on Twitter and after the documentary, people were asking, is there going to be some written version of this book, of mm -hmm. this uh, journey? So I got it all written um, and then I did the usual thing, which is you approach uh, agents so you're supposed to approach literary agents who will then take your manuscript if they think it's good enough, mm -hmm. and they will approach publishers and try and sell it for you. Um, before I even did that, I actually paid for professional editing services on the manuscript. So there's an organization called the Writer's Workshop in the UK who kind of put published authors and editors, they connect them together with um, people looking to get their first book published. So I got paired together with Sam Jordison, who is uh, runs his own I guess he runs his own um, pub his own publication. He writes for a couple of newspapers in the UK. He's pretty well established. Mm -hmm. He gave me loads and loads of feedback on things that needed to change, which is all very constructive. So I made the changes, and then I went about trying to hunt down agents. Um, and that was a lengthy and disheartening process, I think. So it's extremely difficult to get published in this genre mm -hmm. at the moment. There's really, there's really no interest from publishers, and therefore, as a result, there's not much interest from agents. Sure. So I, I think I, I got told by a few people, you know, unless you've done something absolutely incredible, like walking the Amazon, for example, um, <laughs> then they're really not interested. Or unless you're a celebrity who's done something uh, along the lines of what we did, people aren't, aren't so keen. So I only had one agent show a bit of interest, but even then, he was really only pointing me in the direction of publishers who might be interested in saying, look, just tell them that I said to, to email. So I probably pitched it to 12 to 14 agents, mm -hmm. and then through one contact with an agent, pitched it directly to about four or five publishers, um, and was rejected in every single case. <laughs> uh, and often rejected after quite a lengthy delay because it takes them a long time to get through these manuscripts. Uh -huh. I mean, often you won't you won't hear from them for sort of three months or so. Then you write to them and ask what's going on, and they'll say, "Oh, thank you very much, but we're not interested." Got it. So that was when I kind of came up with the idea of getting in touch with Unbound instead, who are the crowdfunding publisher who are actually getting our book out there at the moment. Got it. And so that's, it's Unbound, it's unbound.com, uh, and if you go to the site, you can search for Kayak the Kwanzaa and find you there. Um, and so then how does Unbound work? Like, how can people help to get your book published? Well, I mean, it's basically Kickstarter, but for books. It's a really, it's a really interesting idea. So what they'll do is um, one of their commissioning editors will read what you've got, decide if they like it, decide if they think it can get published. And then you discuss with them 
how it's going to be published. So is it going to be a hardback or a paperback? Does it need photographs? How long is it going to be? You know, at what stage is the manuscript? Is it ready to go or does it need a lot more editing? Mm -hmm. uh, you talk to them a lot about how you can help to market the book. Um, and then they launch it on their page, basically. And it's, it's up there. Um, and you essentially get people to pledge uh, an amount to buy the book, whether they want to buy a Kindle version or a paperback or a signed paperback or whatever. Um, and when you hit your funding target, they'll publish it. So it's interesting because obviously it removes all of the risk from both sides. So yeah. uh, if, if you self-publish, then you have to front that money yourself with no guarantee that you're going to get it back. You have to pay thousands of pounds to get it edited and printed and distributed uh -huh. with no, no idea how, how it's going to sell. And likewise, that's the risk the publishers take when they sign on with a new author. Whereas this way, they just stick it on the website. If it hits publication target then it goes out there and it's already pre-sold basically if it doesn't then it just drops off the website and they really haven't spent much money or time on it so it's not a huge loss for them yeah that's really fantastic and so it's fantastic yeah it means they can take a lot more risk it means they can publish a lot more genres essentially which i really like yeah and so i'm looking at the site right now and it looks like you're about 20 percent funded um is there a time limit that like you have to yeah. get this funded by or... Uh, no, it's very flexible. So that's another thing that makes it different from Kickstarter. So at the moment, we haven't even agreed a time limit. So it went up on the website very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the standard time frame is about three months. Okay. Um, so three months from the time that you sign the contract and make all the agreements. But again, they, they can revisit it, have a look and see how it's doing at that stage. And then they can extend if they want to. So I think they said their success rate, I think... They told me that 35% of the stuff they put up there doesn't get published. Okay. Which is, is not a bad success rate, really. 65% of the stuff that goes up does manage to get the funding. Uh, and they also said they do often extend. So it's not always going to hit the target in three months. Got it. Um, so really, it's, it's down to you. Once it's up there, it's down to you to use the social media network that you've built to, to sell it to the people who are already interested in the journey. And that's what we're doing at the moment. Cool. Yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, I, I love that. We will definitely be sharing that with our friends and um, and I will uh, buy a copy from you. Um, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so then a couple, a couple other just uh, more general travel life questions for you. Uh, so you're currently in Madagascar. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. And then what are you doing there? So I work as a history teacher in an international school out here at the moment. Okay. And have you, so you were, you're from the UK, you were living in Angola, you're currently living in Madagascar. Have there been other um, places you've lived yes. abroad? Yes, uh, before, before both of those places, uh, I lived in, in Khartoum, the capital of Sudan. Okay. And is your... Um, do you have plans on, on continuing to move and hop around countries? Are you pretty set where you're at right now? Or what does the next couple of years look like for you? Well, I think the next couple of years we're going to stay in Madagascar. So we're probably going to stay here for at least three years. We only, we only moved out, my girlfriend and I, in August last year. Okay. So, I mean, we've only been here about seven months or so. So I think the aim is probably to stay about three, three years or so. Okay. And then we'll have a think about what we're doing. But yeah, as you can probably tell from the list of countries, I'm, I'm very keen on living and working in Africa. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, I um, I'll actually be in Kenya in April, so in about a month from now, I'm taking off, uh, to to head oh, over there. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, uh, so this is a little bit of an open-ended question, but do you have like 
one or two traveling tips, uh, um, just things that you've picked up along the way from your travels, from living abroad, uh, that might not be um, the most uh, the most common knowledge. Um, well, that is a broad question. Um, <laughs> well, I've I've done I do a fair amount of traveling in uh, I suppose difficult destinations. So uh-huh. either post post conflict areas or areas that are quite poor have lots of issues with corruption and those those sorts of things. So. Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose I suppose I could give a couple of tips on dealing dealing with the authorities in some of these countries, which I've learned the hard way. Yeah, that'd be I awesome. I, I mean, in 2016, uh, I published a travel guide to Equatorial Guinea, which is one of the ten least visited countries in Africa, has an extremely bad reputation for corruption. Um, and I kind of decided that when I was going over there to do the research for the travel guide, I was determined I wasn't going to pay any bribes. Mm-hmm. to any police or other authorities, uh, regardless of how inconvenient it was. Um, and over the course of my six weeks there, I managed to not pay any bribes. Um, and then I actually wrote up my experience in a little sort of uh, box in the guidebook, a tip on uh, avoiding the shakedown, basically. <laughs> so <laughs> how to deal with uh, the corrupt corrupt policemen at roadblocks and that sort of thing. So I guess um, I suppose the, I, if, I, if it had to be three, I'd say uh, the first thing is to stay calm and be polite mm-hmm. um, and realize that it's going to take a while. I think you really do need to learn patience, uh, mm-hmm. infinite patience when you're <laughs> traveling in some of these countries. You, you really can't be in a rush, uh, and the more impatient you get, obviously, the more they're going to realize that you need to be somewhere and the more they're going to delay you. So, yeah, losing your temper is not going to achieve anything. Um, and you know, trying to hurry things along isn't going to achieve anything anyway. So I, I'd stay calm, stay polite, and realize that it's probably going to take a fair while to sort the situation out. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd say the second thing is never hand over any of your original documentation. So <laughs> don't, don't ever hand the police anything you're not willing to walk away from. Um, now, most, most discussions at checkpoints are essentially a ransom situation. So they've either taken your driver's license or your passport and they're making you pay to get it back. Uh-huh. And the, easy, the easiest way to avoid that situation is to not hand over your passport or anything else in the first place. Uh, the way I usually do that is I carry copies, photocopies, uh-huh. color photocopies. You get them laminated to make them look uh, more fancy. In some countries, you can actually get them certified at police stations, so they have a little official stamp on them to show that they are a real copy of the original. Okay. Um, and but obviously you can just hand that over, and if they're not willing to give it back, then you can just walk away from the situation and keep going. Um, I also always carry a international driver's license with me because that's very easy to replace. I think that only costs about less than fifteen US dollars to get in Europe. So again, I can uh, I can walk away. They can keep that. I don't need to pay them to get it back. Essentially. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I suppose uh, let's have a think. What could I say is the third thing. Uh, I'd say, oh yeah, I'd say the third thing and the most important thing is is communication issues are going to be your best friend in any of these situations. So never, ever, ever speak the language that they're speaking to you in, <laughs> even if you do speak the language. So yeah, if you know if you're in a French speaking country, speak English. If you're in an English speaking country, speak French. Whatever it takes, you need to insert a language barrier between you and the person because what what you really want is to appear like a sort of helpful idiot. Got so. It. You would do what they were asking you to do if only you could understand. <laughs> you, you don't. You, you don't want to upset them by seeming belligerent or refusing to do stuff that they're that they're asking you to do, which is usually hand over cash. So 
I tend to find that after about 20 minutes, most police will lose interest and wave you on if you kind of smile, nod, and then do the wrong thing over and over again. Gotcha. That's brilliant. So, That's... Yeah, I think, yeah, well, it takes it takes a while. In fact, a lot of my taxi drivers in Equatorial Guinea got very, very angry with me because I refused because they're just like, look, why don't you just give him five dollars? Then we could go instead of having <laughs> to go through this this thirty minute dance every time we're at a checkpoint. But I was quite keen to not have to do that every time, so we had to go through this process. But yeah, I guess you just got to build that into your travel itinerary. Really. No. Extra time. Yeah, I love that. Um. Cool. So, uh, last question for you. Um, so, you've been you're teaching history currently at, at an international school. Is that how is teaching how you've been able to um, to travel and to live abroad? Yeah, that was definitely my sort of entry into um, living and working abroad. Yeah. Do, do you so, do? Sorry, go go ahead. I mean, international schools. Uh, it's a fantastic job uh, as long as you go to a reputable one. Um, they usually provide accommodation. Obviously, you have the school holidays because it's teaching, which gives you an opportunity to travel and often an opportunity to travel in a place that many many people haven't been to if you choose to come to Africa especially. Um, and yeah, living somewhere just gives you a much better idea of what's safe and what isn't and what possibilities there are for travel than kind of jetting in for a few weeks and then leaving again, which I quite like. Sure. Um, do you have any other uh, things that you do to generate income or is it uh, just the teachings are main source there? Uh, it, it varies from time to time. So at the moment, teaching is my main source of income, and I've signed a two-year contract to teach at the international school here, so that's what I'll be doing. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I guess I have three streams of income usually. Uh, one of them is travel writing. Mm -hmm. that's, that's my most pathetic and <laughs> unprofitable <laughs> income stream. But yeah, so I write for usually for BRAT travel guides. So okay. I've written a guide. Uh, guide for Angola, guide check for Guinea. Tend to focus on Africa, which, as you can imagine, doesn't generate many royalties. Sure, but it's it's great work, um, and it's awesome to be able to travel around and do the research on these books. Uh, I also do political risk consultancy for people. Again, linked to the places that I've lived and worked. Okay. So I do a lot of advisory work for either individuals or companies who are going to want to move into one of these high risk locations to give them their due diligence before they decide to invest a load of money or move a load of personnel, help them to understand what the risks are going to be and how they can mitigate those risks. Gotcha. Uh, and then there's teaching. So those are the kind of three things that I do regularly. Got it. Cool. That sounds great. Um, well, thank you very much for your time, Oscar. Um, there are... You can find Oscar at kayakthekwanza.com. You can check out the book at unbound.com and search Kayak for Kwanzaa there. Uh, and those links will be in the show notes. Um, Oscar, are there any other uh, places you want people to find you or, or any other things you want to plug quick? Uh, no, not really. They can find us on Twitter as well. So we have uh, Kayak for Kwanzaa as a handle on Twitter. Um, we're pretty active on there. Okay. Uh, we have a Facebook group, but we're not we're not so active on Facebook. It's basically just kind of uh, reposting all the Twitter stuff on Facebook at the moment. We gotcha. need to get better at that. Gotcha. Cool. That sounds great. Well, um, do you have any other thoughts you want to share? Uh, no, no, not at this stage. But I mean, if anyone has any questions based on the podcast, then please get in touch. You know where to find me. That sounds great. Well, Oscar, thank you again uh, for your time this morning, and I hope you have a great rest of your day. Well, morning for me, evening, early early evening for you, I suppose. Yes. Uh, thank you very much, Sam. All right. All right. See you, Oscar.
Thank you all for listening to the Travel and Adventure podcast. You can find out more about Oscar at kayakthekwanza.com. That's K-W-A-N-Z-A. You can find us at bettertraveler.world, and you can find all of these links in the show notes. Have a great day.